Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron from BizNews. In this episode, we look at how COVID-19 has changed life in South Africa, and we update you on the latest COVID-19 news. Grim statistics confirm that South Africa's economy fell off a cliff in the second quarter of the year, with gross domestic product shrinking by 16% or 50%, depending on how you do the calculation. We speak to a leading sociologist, Professor David Dickinson of the University of the Witwatersrand, for his insights on whether COVID-19 containment has changed the fabric of South Africa. And we hear the heartbreaking story of how COVID-19 corruption connected to the delivery of supplies to the poorest communities has pushed people into inhumane conditions. Marilyn Basson of the NGO Boycanio, the Dion Herson Foundation, tells how a long chain of NGOs is getting food parcels to people who are relying on a few tablespoons of porridge a day in deep rural areas. Also coming up on this program is an update from our partners at Bloomberg on whether a cure for COVID-19 is likely. First, the COVID-19 news. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. The number of deaths in South Africa has reached 15,500. And as global coronavirus cases near 30 million, a senior health official in China has said she expects a vaccine to be publicly available as early as November. According to the Johns Hopkins University COVID-19 tracker, deaths worldwide stand at just under 1 million and are expected to pass that mark by October. In India, where infections trail only the U.S., total COVID-19 cases have approached 5 million. Britain has lost nearly 700,000 jobs due to the COVID-19 pandemic, with Bloomberg reporting that this is a blow to the economy that will heap further pressure on the government to extend its wage support programs. Developing Asia's coronavirus-battered economy will shrink for the first time since the early 60s, reports the Economic Times. It says the level of output next year is still seen below pre-pandemic projections even as growth recovers. It quotes the Asian Development Bank. It says the region's gross domestic product will decline by 0.7% in 2020, down from June's projection. Lawyers for policymakers in a landmark UK insurance case over payouts related to COVID-19 have called the ruling a resounding victory for their clients. The Financial Conduct Authority said insurers should begin processing claims in light of the ruling from a pair of London judges. Shares in Hiscox and RSA Insurance Group gained after the companies responded to the ruling, providing estimates of the impact. The insurers, together with Zurich Insurance and five other companies, had objected to the FCA case, which was brought in an effort to bring legal clarity to dozens of policies under dispute. The Guardian reports that hundreds of thousands of small companies will receive payouts on insurance claims after being forced to close during the COVID-19 pandemic. About 370,000 firms are affected by the judgment, says The Guardian, and these companies should hear from their insurer within the next week. A similar case is underway in South Africa, where Suntum and other large insurers are being taken to court by small hospitality providers in connection with their refusal to pay for business interruption claims. Russia's new cases and deaths rose the most since late July as the virus spread with the return of millions to school and work. The government reported just under 5,500 new cases and 150 deaths. 
The UK is preparing to extend a ban preventing commercial tenants from being evicted by landlords until the end of the year. This is according to the Financial Times. Citigroup will resume job cuts this week, joining rivals such as Wells Fargo and Co. in ending an earlier pledge to pause staff reductions during the coronavirus pandemic. It says the cuts will affect less than 1% of the bank's global workforce. Microsoft founder Bill Gates has said COVID-19 has set back public health efforts, reducing food distribution and inflating prices. Speaking to BBC World, he said richer countries, including the US, had not yet done enough to make sure that vaccines will be available for all when ready for distribution. But he's also highlighted the good news that research and trials have been well funded. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Next, South African Medical Research Council CEO Dr. Glenda Gray said recently that malnutrition has resurfaced for the first time in decades at the Chris Harney Baraguanath Hospital. But Health Minister William Kize responded by saying Dr. Gray's comments were inaccurate. Biz News spoke to Marilyn Basson, who, with other volunteers, has been working to raise money and distribute a nutritional porridge to impoverished communities where grandmothers and children look after one another. To date, their project, Save a Soul, has provided nutritional support to about 100,000 children in rural areas, with the help of funding from South Africans in the country and elsewhere. Basson shares some insights on the daily struggle for many South Africans. It's the most terrible thing to see. You know what's the most terrible thing to see about this is how accepting these people are and how used to being disappointed and let down by government they are. It absolutely astounds me because to live like these people live and some granted they might and it is the reasons that some of them may be foreign nationals and the reasons that some of them in a household may not be South Africans, but the majority of them are South Africans living in squalor, that is so terrible. There is no humanity. There is just no humanity. I often say, have any of the government officials ever walked here? And they mustn't say, hey, we grew up here. Nonsense. You've got to walk there now. We walked into a house in, in Guavuma, which is one of the provinces in KZN, KwaZulu-Natal, very, very, very poor province. What I love about these rural people, their resilience, their everything. I love photographing things. Always get permission. Can I photograph this? Yes, that's it. And I saw that, that she, this woman had two grandchildren. Both of them were absolutely tiny. Both of them were three were three years three years older than their growth growth age. I would say they were absolutely growth stunted. In the garden was a dog that was skeletally thin. And I went and I was photographing and I just looked at this and I said, oh, we handed over EPUB. The house has got such dignity in the house, a table with a tablecloth, a, a pot of tea with a tea cozy over it, but nothing else. A wooden bed, nothing else. A bicycle, they had a bicycle. Somebody had given them a bicycle. And dried millies hanging up that she had picked and she had grown and she had dried. She's probably going to make a maize meal from it. The cupboard's totally empty. The fridge, totally, totally empty. She did have electricity. When I went outside and I was photographing where they were cooking, I went back and I, and I nearly stood on something, and it was a tiny puppy that was chained to the ground. And I turned to her and I said to her, I said, when last did he eat? He was, it was on, he was on his last. And she threw out her arms and she said, no food. And I looked at her. She was right. No food. I said, well, why do you chain him? She said, because if he's out in the street, they poison him. They poison dogs there. 
And you just look at this absolute, there's no fence, there's no protection, there's no police, there's no food, there's those children. It was COVID times. If you were at a decent school, you were having homeschooling. The streets in these areas in KwaZulu-Natal, the children are playing and playing and play. They, all they did for those six months was they played in the street. Nobody had any education. I don't know what's happening with the matriculants. Let's get back to this woman. I just looked at her and I said to her, can I at least take the puppy? And she said yes. And I took her puppy. And I will never, ever forget this woman. How she threw out her arms and said, no food. When last did he eat no food? And it went for the entire household. To live like that, when you are, and she was a South African citizen. She just said, no, I said, when last did the dog eat? She said, no food. I don't know when she ate. I don't know, but the catastrophe out there is that it's the cattle, it's the sheep, it's everything that depends on you to buy stuff to feed also is going down with you. It's not just you, you know, it's just terrible. Between, you know, I don't even know how humanitarian crisis is defined. Is it defined in are they going to die en masse or is it defined in will they have no education? Will they not have a future? I'm not sure how humanitarian crisis is defined. They are in such terrible trouble. They will never recover. How are they ever going to recover? And when I say recover, children's brains are being starved of food. Their bodies are being starved of food and they might die. I'm quite sure that the vulnerable are going to die. This is our entire program is aimed at stopping the vulnerable from dying. But then there is the education, which has all but come to a standstill. The education here was so poor to begin with that 50% of the kids that enrolled in grade one made it up until grade 10. The education was so bad in so many of the schools now children have not even returned. So those who enrolled in grade one, I wonder what the statistics are going to be like by the end of this year when they actually do statistics and see who's still in, in school. It's going to be way more than 50% dropped out. And that is a crisis and a, and, and a disaster because there's no future for these people. What else is there other than to turn to crime? You have to. You've got to live. You've got to live. My heart bleeds for them, these people. They're our people. My heart bleeds for them. KwaZulu Natal is where we have sent lots and lots of EPUP up there. We send to central distribution points. Often the one, one of them is rotary. Other points we land up taking, but we cannot hand out. We have to hand out to the people who know who need it. So we locate NGOs who are in the middle of here, there and everywhere. Small ones, big ones, medium sized ones. We locate them and we get them to come and fetch EPUP and each one of them takes out and distributes to their beneficiaries and the ones that are most needy. At the end of the day, in KwaZulu-Natal, without a doubt, we had 35 NGOs who were distributing our EPUP. Because from our point of view alone, just to get the EPUP up to where it should be, to that point of mass distribution to other NGOs, there are five involved already. There are those who volunteered to transport it and those who... It's an amazing chain and everyone has just banded together. It's absolutely incredible. We get our funds from wonderful people out there who know about the project and who donate. We've gotten it from not really corporates. I wouldn't say corporates. We've got it mostly from individuals, people who've seen it on Facebook. We've seen organizations and NGOs who've seen us on Facebook and NGOs who may know of us. 
and they know the vetting that goes into getting this EPUB out because I'm busy all day long vetting because you have to have certain criteria in my books before you can even manage the stuff. Once a successful lot has gone out, we often get supported again by the same people and by the same NGOs. And every time I keep saying, can you believe it looks like the funds are running out? Some absolutely incredible organization comes up and says, here's some more, go somewhere else. And what we're trying to do now is tackle a province or a big area because it's much easier than sending off to just a town here and a rotary branch there. And then it is much easier to send up uh, seven tons of EPUB to an area. And then we like to go up and make sure that it actually is getting out to where it should be going to. EPUB is a porridge which has got your recommended daily allowance of vitamins and minerals and it has got half of your proteins and half of your carbohydrates per day. It is not an entire one meal per day, but it is enough to keep an adult or a child going, and it is enough to keep them alive. They do need the additional maize meal and beans and lentils or soy or whatever that they are getting. But they, I mean, they'll be getting it sometimes sporadically every few days. They obviously need that, and obviously to make it an absolute perfect system, you would like to give out with extras as well, but we are just doing the EPUB side of it. It is enough to keep a person alive and a child alive. Next, sociology professor David Dickinson of the University of the Witwatersrand shares his insights on how COVID-19 has altered the fabric of society. With us now is Professor David Dickinson, a professor of sociology at the University of the Witwatersrand. Professor Dickinson, you must have been watching the COVID-19 shutdown with much interest. What is the COVID-19 lockdown telling you? Well, yes, I have been watching it with interest. I think, you know, there's so much unknowns about the epidemic. Uh, and I think we've all been on a roller coaster ride. But in terms of the response to the epidemic, it, I mean, it does look increasingly as though the response in terms of the lockdown here in South Africa, at least, but I think it's possibly elsewhere, has caused more damage than the epidemic itself. It's a counterfactual point, because if we hadn't had the lockdown, would it have been different? But from my experience of looking around me and also going into South African townships, it's a fantasy lockdown. There isn't a lockdown happening. We can talk about where the lockdown is effective. There are particular points, but there's no such thing as a lockdown. And therefore, we have to ask the question, Why has the epidemic been as mild as it has? And then balance that against the absolutely clear, devastating economic impact that's certainly taking place on the ground. And we can can see it also coming through in the financial reports now. Can you just sketch the picture of what you're actually seeing in the townships? And has it changed at all compared to what you were seeing a year ago? Look, it's not just the townships. I mean, I think if you drive around the suburbs, the number of homeless people is increasing, the number of beggars are increasing. And that's a terrible thing to say, but I think it's also clear the aggressiveness of begging and sort of petty theft is increasing. In the townships, there's a complete lockdown. And uh, so just at a personal level, I'm getting increased requests for financial aid. You know, people that I've known for years, factory workers, they're on one day a week now, and they're not even sure if that's from week to week. If you've got no other income coming into the household, you're actually, you know, people are asking for food, basically. And then also there's these vast government sort of make jobs, the community work programs and so on. And they, they seem to have gone into a chaotic tailspin. So people, they were managing, it's a kind of a stipend arrangement to sort of keep the wolf from the door. And that's broken down as well. 
So again, we are facing real hardships. There has been responses. I think it's worth thinking about those responses. There's the 350 rand a month extension of Social Security, which is a kind of a good move, but it's a tiny amount and people are struggling to get it. There's been food parcels through the government, which have been absolutely corrupt. We can talk about this wider aspect of corruption in the response to the pandemic. There's been grassroots attempts to respond with sort of soup kitchens and so on. But this is all ad hoc. It's not well organised. As I said, it's been distorted. If people who have got regular jobs are extremely lucky. Who do we blame for this? Or do you think the government should have had a different strategy? We're talking with hindsight. So I think would we have made the right, better decision is a very difficult question to answer. I say with hindsight, I think the lockdown was a complete disaster. It was far too early. That I think some people were already indicating. I think the President Ramaphosa is, is genuine. I think he was bounced or panicked by incorrect models. The problem is that academics, you know, it's a lot of prestige competing against each other as to who's got the best models. And it's clearly the models were wrong. With hindsight, that's absolutely clear. Maybe they're disastrously wrong. We'll find out historically when we look back on it. Nobody's got the right answers here. But should we have collapsed the economy as we have? I think it looks increasingly clear as we shouldn't. And it's a big hole we've dug. And it's not clear how quickly we can dig our way out of it. And we're already in a deep hole anyway. We have you know, mass unemployment in South Africa. We've had it now for at least two decades, three decades longer, if you consider the hidden unemployment in the, in the homelands under apartheid. So we've just made the situation much worse. In an increasingly angry society, people have lost faith, by and large, in the constitutional settlement of 1994. And this has been a real vicious twist, uh, closing down sections of the economy on top of a pretty grim economic situation for those outside of the 10%, the 5% of us who are very privileged in South Africa. And the alcohol ban, do you think that was good or bad for curbing crime and violence against women? It's a complicated thing. There's good and um, bad to it. But again, as I've said, the lockdown was a fantasy and so was the alcohol ban. Uh, certainly I was able to buy alcohol in the township without any problems, whether it was home-brewed, the pinapole and the combote and, and these various concoctions, or whether it was bootlegged alcohol. There was certainly, actually, I say in the township, but it was also true on the WhatsApp group in my suburban neighbourhood that stuff was being sold. What happened is that the price spiked. I mean, it went to two or three times the price. So you actually, whether you saved income and therefore, I mean, that has a huge effect on family well-being, right, on, on low-income families, it's not clear. Did it reduce violence against women? Probably it did. We would have to look at the stats. I mean, uh, I think there was probably less drunkenness, but it certainly didn't. It didn't stop drinking. It didn't stop people congregating. So, you know, you have to look at the pros and cons. Apparently, it did free up ICU beds. There seems to be some data on that. Whether we needed those ICU beds, debatable again uh, in terms of the virus. I, I, I think what we're seeing now is a lot of politicians and technocrats are running for cover and reconstructing stories to justify decisions that were made in what was a very complex situation. So, I mean, the alcohol ban is an interesting one. The tobacco ban, I think, is clearer. That was uh, completely unnecessary. There was very little scientific rationale for it. The one aspect that tobacco would have been useful to get rid of is the sharing of cigarettes, which is a very common practice in the township. But the problem was by saying that you can't buy tobacco when people could buy tobacco, just like alcohol, you could buy it. It was just a price hike. It meant that you couldn't have a public health message that said don't share your cigarettes. So kind of there was these contradictory processes going on. 
And I think people rumbled that. They could see that politicians were pursuing individual agendas. People were jockeying for position. And I'm talking both ideologically in terms of these health issues, but also, as we've increasingly realized, in terms of contract and giving off, taking off percentages, large percentages of these things. What do you make of the government's approach to the lockdown, imposing these strange regulations? What, what is behind that? There's no one answer to that. I think there's hidden agendas, or, or not so hidden, but they were there, you know, from ideological perspectives. I think there was, uh, obviously, there was lobbying going on. I mean, standing joke in the township, we have to stand, well, we're supposed to stand two metres apart waiting for the taxi to get home. And then when we get in the taxi, we're shoulder to shoulder. And that was obviously lobbying by the taxi industry, which is an incredibly powerful lobby, because if it stops going, then nobody gets to work at all. So there was a combination of agendas. There was a combination of lobbying. There was a combination of incompetency. I mean, I think what's been revealed is that the last, unfortunately, the promises of 94 have not been fulfilled. The civil service and the government have spent 15, 20 years degenerating its own capacity because its individuals are too busy taking advantage for themselves, as we're well aware of. The corruption is just right through society. So that when the crunch came, no one had the capacity to actually coherently think through this, let alone have contingency plans already in place. For what, let's face it, and I mean, this applies to, I think, nearly every country in the world, it's not a surprise that we've had an epidemic. Many health, public health scientists have been saying, you know, wait for it to come along, wait for it to come along, it will come along. Whether this one is actually the big one is, is an interesting question, because perhaps, as I've been saying, and I think a lot of people are saying now, it's actually not as deadly uh, as we thought at this stage. Who knows? Like the Spanish flu, it could, of course, change its, its nature. So if it's not as deadly as we thought it was, do you think we still need to take precautions? It doesn't do any harm to take precautions, but it's a bit of a theoretical question. I think there's some sections of the middle class are making precautions. There's kind of what we can call uh, state pinch points. So if you go into a court building, you have to put a mask on, but there's nothing stopping you taking the mask off when you come out of the building. And that's what you see people doing. Same with shops or some shops. Early on in the lockdown, there was the roadblocks. That was the, that did stop some travel, but the, the police had kind of lost interest after a while, it seems, on that. These restrictions, if we were keeping them in the first place, we could have a debate about whether we should keep them or not. But as we're not, as they've never really been in place to any significant amount, I think it's a theoretical discussion. Let's look at vaccinations. So the World Health Organization did a report recently and they, in their survey they found that at least 26% of people don't like the idea of a COVID-19 vaccine and then we've got this growing force of people who are very anti-vaccine. What is the picture in South Africa and should we be encouraging vaccinations and how would the government do that for the groups that are very opposed to that? It's, a, it's kind of a moving feast. The construction of meaning around the epidemic has been very fluid. So if you if you had a conversation in South Africa about the virus at the beginning of the epidemic, you know, the, the conspiracy theories and so on and the explanations, I would actually call them lay theories, are very different to what you're hearing now. I mean, what we learned from the AIDS epidemic, I think, is that if you don't really have a quick cure or a quick way of dealing with something, you don't get buy-in. And then there's a lot of scope for all sorts of fears and theories in opposition to that. And that was true when, you know, when we didn't really, well, we still don't, when there isn't really a cure for HIV. But once we got antiretroviral drugs and it was eventually sort of proved that they, they would work, you know, a lot of people came on board. I mean, I'm not saying we got everybody on board, but treatment became much easier to talk about and to accept. And I think we'll see the same thing with a, a vaccine. 
obviously there's a danger of rushing the vaccine too soon and the side effects and I think that we're going to fall into that trap likely because uh, there's this kind of nationalism around who gets the, the vaccine first and it's much more as I think the who has said is it's much more complicated than that for an effective vaccine but once a vaccine is proved to be effective and it comes back to the point that people are still afraid of COVID because I think certainly in South Africa it's a very blase response now. I mean, it's worth thinking the official death figures for COVID in the country are now over, say, let's say about a six month period is about 15,000. It's probably higher than that. But, you know, the death, the number of people who die each year in South Africa on average is somewhere between 600 and 700,000. So in a way, if people are not afraid of the virus, then why would they vaccinate in any way? But if the vaccination is easy, straightforward, it's proved to work and it's seen a value, then I actually think that you'll reduce down these anti-vaxxers to a small rump. That would be my sort of take on it, learning from what we did about sort of the popular responses to the AIDS epidemic here. What else can we learn from how we've dealt with HIV AIDS? My own view is that the public health messaging has been appalling. It's kind of repeating ridiculous things about how to take your mask on and off correctly and so on. Uh, Hyper detail, just because we can talk about this hyper detail, but not to address the real problem. So I talked earlier about the cigarettes. We haven't had a single message in South Africa, don't share your cigarette, which is obviously a very easy way of spreading a virus, presumably from mouth to mouth. Some of us learnt in the AIDS epidemic is that we need to be much more creative in our public health messages, much more fun, much more engaging, to do it in terms of parables and stories and jokes and memes, and not in this very boring, unrealistic kind of almost manual approach to it, which amongst the general population doesn't work. So I think a much more creative approach to public health messaging is something that I hope we should have learnt from the, the AIDS epidemic. Before we close off, you mentioned corruption with food parcels. What are you actually seeing on the ground there? Because it sounds like the very poorest of the poor and the hungriest people are being really taken for a ride here. Absolutely. And it's everywhere. I mean, I've even you know, seen reports of people who are trying to get their 350 rand grant uh, having to give a cool drink. That's you know, the name for a bribe here out of that to, to a low level official. This society is corrupt from top to bottom. You know, it didn't really help that we had a corrupt president who's... Uh, gradually getting towards the courts, but it's everywhere. So, and then the food parcels, you know, people joke about the food, the night food parcels because they get to the councillors, you know, I'm talking in general, but uh, I think it's not uncommon. Councillors get control of this and it doesn't go to where it should do. People have lost confidence by and large in their politicians uh, and, and why the food parcels were ever put through the politicians, through the local councillors is a very interesting question because it certainly shouldn't have been. And what do you make of all the talk by the governments now that they're trying to clean up on corruption and that we might see a high-level arrest by the end of September? Do you think that's really important to see that happening, to restore some confidence? I would love it, but we're going to have to put a lot of people in jail. You know, to be honest, it's, it's not really happening. What we're seeing typically is commissions are set up, and we know what commissions do. They sideline it. When I see those people going to jail, I'll be very happy and I'll support it, but we need action. And it's not clear that's happening. I think one of the problems is it's pretty much everybody is guilty and no one really wants to start putting people in jail because we'll all end up there. Do you think corruption's impacting on the way that people have been reacting to government messaging around COVID? It doesn't help. If you want to get people to believe you, you have to be credible. If you think that people are in it for themselves, which I think pretty much everybody now sees that the political system, it doesn't mean that they know what the answer is, but they see that. Why would you believe them on anything else?
this is quite a depressing conversation we've just had. What can we do to improve the situation in South Africa? Do you see any hope? Not in the short term. I think it's going, to, it's going to have to get worse. I mean, it probably needs a major political tectonic shift. The Constitution of 94 is a fantastically progressive document, but it's not working. Unfortunately, it's not working in the country. It can be used by people to shield themselves for their own interests. That's not what it was designed for. It was kind of designed for gentlemen and gentlewomen. And this is a, the most unequal society on earth, highly materialistic, Underneath public ideology of Ubuntu, which is a collective ideology, it's actually extremely individualistic. The problem is that we don't have a mature political system which would allow a transfer of power smoothly. Unfortunately, dreams of 94 are pretty much smoldering in, in a wreck now. And obviously, eventually, societies will pull themselves around. But I don't see any light, actually, uh, in the short term. So where do you see the light? Ten years' time? Twenty years' time? I, I think these things are impossible to predict. Uh, you know, we've got a political logjam in terms of the, the constitution and the political system. So, you know, decades. It's impossible to say, of course. And it could likely go quite bad, quite sharply. may not, but we'll see. Mm, very interesting. Well, thank you very much for chatting to us, Professor Dickinson. Next, Biz News partners at Bloomberg share an update on progress on cures for viral infections and how scientists might be able to fight COVID-19. Even after a vaccine is developed, the coronavirus is likely to remain with us for years. That means researchers must pursue efforts to find a cure for those who still fall sick. Viruses are tricky to fight. And prevention with vaccines has been far more successful than treatment with drugs. In fact, modern medicine has come up with a true cure for only one viral infection. For many serious infections, the best approaches are a cocktail of drugs that throw speed bumps in front of the infection. I spoke with Michelle Faye-Cortez, who reports that the best solution for fighting viruses is often letting our own bodies attack them. Viruses have been getting humans sick for millennia, really. And even with the advances of modern medicine, viruses are clearly still causing millions of deaths each year. So what makes viruses so hard to defeat? A virus is a very unique thing. And it is not a living organism. It has to be inside a cell in order to survive and thrive and reproduce. You can actually kill a virus very easily if it's outside of a cell. In fact, it can't even survive outside of a cell. And if you can get anything onto it, like disinfectant, like sunlight, like almost anything, it can't exist without being inside of a cell. So... In order to kill a virus or destroy a virus or slow down a virus, you have to actually be operating inside a cell. And when you're talking about something like coronavirus, that virus has gotten into very important cells that we all need in order to survive ourselves. So trying to slow it down is tricky. It's not just coronavirus. We actually only have medicine that can cure a virus for one condition, and that's hepatitis C. It took an awfully long time to come up with that medicine, and we just haven't had that much time when it comes to coronavirus. 
Now, in terms of what our bodies are able to do naturally, I mean, how do our immune systems, without the help of a vaccine or other drugs, how does it naturally try to fight off a virus? The human immune system is an amazing thing. It produces millions upon millions of what are essentially infection-fighting drugs every day. One of the millions of antibodies that we have out there latches onto a foreign invader, which is called an antigen. And once it identifies that, the immune system is like all in. It sends everybody to that spot and starts reproducing and multiplying and creating more and more antibodies to shut down whatever that attacker is. Once that's happened, everything recedes, but not to the level that it was before, because now the body's aware that that threat is out there. So those antigens keep circulating and patrolling so that if they see that virus again, it can just go straight into attack mode. That's why we don't have to worry about infections over and over again. That's how our body primes itself to keep us healthy. And it does that naturally. It's one of the amazing things that our body knows how to breathe. It knows how to regulate our blood sugar and our insulin levels, and it keeps us healthy. For us trying to do that outside of the body, we are getting better at it, but it's still not anywhere near as efficient. And so let's talk about those tools that we we use to fight viruses. So how do drugs or vaccines mimic what our immune system is already doing with antibodies? That is absolutely what research is built on across almost every plane that we're talking about. When you talk about convalescent plasma, for example, that is literally just trying to take those antibodies out of someone who's already fought the infection and put it into someone new. But there are more efficient ways to do that. There are researchers who have been able to actually create monoclonal antibodies. That means they're building those antibodies outside of the body, directly targeted for the antigen that's of interest, in this case, the one that causes coronavirus. Those monoclonal antibodies can be infused into the patient and go directly to killing that antigen, to directly killing that that attacker. Now, what a vaccine does is it tries to build on that underlying process of how the immune system works. It introduces just a tiny piece of that virus to give the heads up to the immune system that, hey, this guy could be coming and it could cause problems for you. So you should ratchet up your production of antibodies against this target. So it's just a shortcut. Not only that, because it's only a piece of the virus or an inactivated part of the virus, you get the benefit without having had the harm. Why are we often talking about a combination of drugs versus a single vaccine? When we're talking about drugs or therapeutics for a virus, coronavirus or any other virus, as we discussed, we can't go in there and just blow them up because then we would be blowing up the human cells. So what they do What these medicines do is they look for weaknesses in the virus, and generally that's around the replication, how the virus causes itself to multiply. In order to do that, you can attack it in more than one different way, and as you're hitting it from all these various sides, you have a better result. Not only that, viruses are very good at mutating, so if you're hitting it from just one direction, it's just going to move. So hitting it with more than one approach generally leads to a better effect. 
There's often also a lot of discussion about the role of a vaccine in creating herd immunity, and that's more of a, a population discussion. And I was wondering if you might just touch on that, how a vaccine can play a role in not just helping to fight off a virus within an individual, but also within a population. The way that we stop an outbreak is by creating immunity to that virus so that the virus, as it's going from one person to the next, literally can't catch on to the next person and as a result dies out. That's what happens with herd immunity, and that is the goal of vaccination. Think about it. The virus gets into your body. It repopulates, 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 and then goes to the next person and does the same thing there, taking over everyone's body as it moves to the next person. If you have been infected and now your immune system is protecting you, you are no longer a host. It can't take hold in your body and get to the next person. That's the same way that the vaccine works. And so if you vaccinate enough people, the vaccine won't be able to continue on and it will essentially die where it, where it lives. If you think about it with measles, we do still have measles and we have outbreaks, but they don't generally last. That's because there's enough people in the world who have been vaccinated against measles. So you might get into a small pocket of people who haven't gotten vaccinated and then you'll see an outbreak there. But before it can get to a broader population, it starts running into these fire breaks, essentially, and it dies out. I mean, we've had coronavirus in various forms for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Why don't we have a vaccine already, I suppose, is the simple question. It's a great question, and it's a complicated question. We do have a lot of coronaviruses out there, but generally they're pretty benign. If you're going to have a common cold, which is what most coronaviruses cause, that's something that the body can handle pretty efficiently. So how much time are researchers going to spend trying to cure something that your body cures almost all the time with pretty minimal damage when they could be working on something more significant? How much money are people willing to spend if they have a shot at maybe recovering from a cold one day faster? The other thing is, is that there are thousands and thousands of viruses, so you don't know exactly the one that you have. So you don't even know if there was a treatment, if it was going to work against that one, or if it would mutate if you if it was faced with some kind of a, of a therapeutic. But there have been other coronaviruses that were really significant, most specifically SARS and MERS. Those are the two new outbreaks that occurred within the last 20 years, and they did cause some pretty major devastation. They were very deadly. The thing is, is that they did burn out pretty quickly when it comes to SARS, and MERS is still spreading in the Middle East. Now, had we continued the work that we started when those two diseases emerged, then we might be further along when it comes to this coronavirus. And this is not something that is going to stop. Just like we had SARS in 2003, just like we had MERS subsequent to that, just like we have this new coronavirus, there will be another one coming. So we are hoping that the money and the effort and the attention put on this coronavirus will continue once we're past this so that we're better equipped for the next outbreak. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. And that brings your Inside COVID-19 podcast to a close. Until next time. 